Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. Today, we will be doing two weeks worth of Come Follow Me LDS commentary, covering sections 125 through 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And we are members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Just since the last episode, I did finally listen to Bristlecone Firesides. And yeah, they have really good work. Many episodes already posted. Mm-hmm. I listened to Nature's Gospel and the Way of Resurrection. It's episode eight. The beginning half of the episode, it was so intellectual. A lot of it went over my head, honestly. But then the second half of the episode... Oh my gosh, it was so meaningful to me. Like they broke down the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, endure to the end. And they connected it to how these aspects are seen in nature. Oh. Like because the earth was made by God. It was so interesting. It was a beautiful episode. That's Bristlecone Firesides and they are connected to the Dialogue Podcast Network. More information for the Dialogue Podcast Network can be found at dialoguejournal.com. Great. That's wonderful. A quick summary. Doctrine and Covenants 125 is revelation to Joseph about the will of God for the saints in Iowa. 126 is revelation to Joseph about Brigham Young being relieved of traveling away from his family. 127 is a letter to the saints from Joseph about trials and about baptisms for the dead, and that actually the concepts of baptisms for the dead and another letter continues on in 128. 129 through 131, instead of the word revelations, actually uses the word instruction. So it's Mm. instruction given from Joseph Smith about angels, the second coming, intelligence, blessings, temple ordinances, and the Godhead. And then 132 is revelation to Joseph about marriage and the plurality of wives. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's happening. (laughs) Where shall we start? Well, uh, at the beginning, I think is a good place to start. Do you have anything for 125? Because I don't. I just in my notes, I put boring AF, create cities (laughs) or homeless. Uh, I actually do. Verse four. The word desire is used, and I felt like that was very interesting. I'll read verse 4. It says, And let all those who come from the east and the west and the north and the south that have desires to dwell therein take up their inheritance in the same in the land. We have to remind ourselves here that the church still owned slaves at this time. So there Mm. were people who were traveling there that didn't have a desire to be there, that were forced to accompany the saints and we're enslaved. And then also we have to think about like patriarchy and how maybe some people were brought along that didn't want to go, you know. Also, remember we read like some saints had properties that they had to leave and they didn't want to leave them. And then they were commanded by Joseph to leave them. That doesn't sound like desire to me. I think that this is a good ideal. And if you think about it as a commandment from the Lord, like the Lord is saying, Those who have a desire, please come, partake of the gospel. If you don't have a desire, you don't have to. I think that that is 
an important um, characteristic of the Lord that they care about desire and want for things and they don't want to force you to do things. Yeah. I just think the church didn't enact it well at all. Also, I mean, and the fact that they were driven from their lands, like a lot of them didn't have a place to go and whether they desired it or not, like this was their new place to go to dwell and hopefully not be persecuted, which also didn't happen. Anyway, very interesting (laughs) word there. And yeah, lots of directions you can take. (laughs) Directions, directions you can take. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty funny. Good joke there. Yeah, I th- I think that's really insightful that almost that word is ironic and pretty contradictory to what is actually happening. Is that what you're saying? Well, first I wanted to point out that here the pattern I'm noticing when I'm thinking of people who could have been brought along for the journey but didn't have the desire, all of them are marginalized groups, people that didn't really have a say for themselves. They didn't have power in the situation, so they could have been uh, brought along whether they were for or against. When it's talking about desire here, the only people that could actually have a say based on their desire are people that had positions of power. Yeah, and it can bring a lot of pain because even in our church currently, like we talk about desire a lot and you're only supposed to be baptized if you believe in it and desire to be baptized like that's an essential Mm. part of baptism but how many people are baptized without even understanding why they're being baptized or even really desiring it you know like it's a tricky word i think it's again an essential part of our life on earth but it gets messed with a lot in different ways Mm -hmm. in the church and with other people in general so it's it's a tricky thing but yeah it's an important thing if you have a desire to move forward and follow your own heart and the spirit and do what's right for you. Section 126. So in this one, Brigham Young is basically allowed to stay with his family and not like go on these missions everywhere, which apparently he's been doing. And I say has been, but but please know I'm speaking as if I were in the year of 1841. (laughs) But anyway, I tried to look into if maybe there were some circumstances with his family, like were one of his family members disabled or something? I don't know. Like, was he being allowed to stay to support them? You know, and I didn't find anything on that, but I did find more context, I will say. So this is from the Doctrine and Covenant student manual. So this is on the church website. For institute or something, but it says, though it was no longer required of Brigham Young to leave his family, he did fill some short-term missions. These included a mission through the states to refute slanderous charges by John C. Bennett and other apostates, a mission in the East to collect funds for the Nauvoo House and Nauvoo Temple, and a mission to campaign for Joseph Smith as a candidate for President of the United States. The whole like apostate thing like always bothers me because you know I love apostates because I am one. Um, anyway, <laughs> so that was kind of annoying, but I just thought it was interesting. Like I feel like from this section we get the impression that yes, Brigham, you're allowed to stay with your family always. Like you're finally relieved, but in reality, he's still left quite a bit. And also, I think it's funny that the manual points out that 
In addition to being able to spend more time with his family after this revelation than he had been able to in the previous several years, Brigham Young was also near the prophet Joseph Smith much of the time, 28 of the last 36 months of Joseph's life. It seems clear that the Lord, knowing Brigham Young's future and the future of the church, kept Brigham near Joseph so he could learn what he would need to know to lead the church right after Joseph's death. (laughs) Which I think is funny considering, like, the succession crisis that happened after Joseph Smith's death. And Mm -hmm. I feel like this is pretty circular reasoning, but I guess we'll talk more about that later when we get to that part of the Doctrine and Covenants, to Joseph's assassination, martyrdom. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I thought was really important to point out in this section, verses two to three say, I have seen your labor and toil and journeyings for my name. I therefore command you to send my word abroad and take special care of your family. So in this manual, it quotes verses 2 and 3 in section 126 and titles it Brigham Young's Toil and Sacrifice When It Was Accounted to Him for Righteousness. And it's basically saying that Brigham Young was throughout his whole life and when he was an apostle, Brigham Young gave unselfishly, whether he was at home or abroad, he supported his family. He financed the work through his own labor everywhere he went. He was the living example of the spiritual principle taught in Lectures on Faith, quote, a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. Joseph Smith said that, quote, And this is setting a bunch of unreasonable standards. Does that make sense? Mm, Yes, it does. (laughs) It's basically saying you have to work to be righteous and you have to work and sacrifice and degrade yourself in order to have enough faith, A, for life. It even says unto life and salvation to live in this life and to be saved in the next. And I think that is some capitalist bullshit that that's on. And in ways that, yeah, in ways that are measurable to other people, the things that were visible to other people that he was doing. Yeah. Let me tell you why this quote is ableist as hell. First of all, why should we be required to sacrifice all just to live? Like that's a basic human right. Secondly, it ignores the fact that marginalized people are required to sacrifice more relatively than non-marginalized people. Mm -hmm. For example, queer people who can't get sealed in the temple sacrifice more in regards to love and happiness in this life and the next than straight people who remain active in the church. Mm -hmm. Disabled people who are incredibly poor because they can't get stable jobs because of their disabilities sacrifice more to pay tithing. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, 10% can be a huge difference to, to one person. Like, let's say $80 may not seem like a lot to someone who who makes, like, median income in the U.S., right? But, like, for a disabled person who's only making $800 a month and barely able to afford their medication, that could be the difference between, like, mobility and incredible pain. Mm-hmm. Like, if you make enough money to cover your basic needs where you're only spending maybe 50% of your income on your basic needs, including rent, insurance, etc., then 10% is already extra. You know what I mean? Whereas poor people who are not making that much money, 10% is not extra to us. Does that make sense? So we're sacrificing more qualitatively. Mm-hmm. 
neurodivergent people or other disabled people who have issues with the word of wisdom sacrifice more by having to keep it because it literally causes them slash us pain to do so versus people who don't have sensory difficulties or who don't have certain things that can be alleviated by smoking pot, for instance. BIPOC people sacrifice more in terms of emotional pain and exhaustion and energy and generational trauma from fighting racism every day in a church that historically excludes and fetishizes them and their ancestors, right? And are, I should say, um, because I'm mixed. Women sacrifice more than men when we sacrifice our time and energy doing all the like mundane, like feminine callings and stuff in the church just so that the men can be free to have leadership positions. So my conclusion is, Brigham Young was not required to sacrifice all things. So this quote is egregiously inaccurate. Mm. He was not required to sacrifice all things. He does not know the meaning of sacrificing all things in comparison to the marginalized people trying to stay in the church and keep their faith alive today. Wow. That was a great understanding of that quote and application. Anyway, that's all I have for that section. (laughs) Dang, that was so good. It is really, really important to read these sections and like think about the position of the person Mm -hmm. when it heralds people as great leaders. 127 uses the word justice. Did you see that? And just recompense. I did (laughs) not, actually. Yeah. This is a letter from Joseph, an epistle to the saints. And it starts out by talking about trials and then it goes to baptisms for the dead. And when it talks about trials, it's talking about people who are in a position to give justice to the saints but have no interest in giving it. And Joseph condemns them. And then verse 3 says, it's talking about God. They will mete out a just recompense of reward upon the heads of all their oppressors. So God will take care of it in the end, which we've talked about that concept a couple times. Verse 2, Joseph has a really, really different attitude than Liberty Jail. And I thought this was a really interesting thing. Liberty Jail was actually three years earlier, now that we're in section 127. And Joseph says, And as for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me, as the envy and wrath of man have been in my common lot all the days of my life. In the face of his trials, he's kind of saying, I'm used to it. Like, I'm used (laughs) to people treating me this way. It's a thing. It's fine. But just three years ago in Liberty Jail, he was mourning and lamenting and looking to God, where are you? And I thought how interesting that nuanced space that he was in where he could feel such extreme differences in the face of the same trial and how like if I didn't know church history, I could look at this and say, oh, God led him to this place and now he's at peace with his trials and he's fine, but we know more. We know that he did go back into a space where he was lamenting and questioning God. Why am I going through these hard things? It was a back and forth thing for him. And I think that that's a great comparison to disability, how we have to call it neutral because there's such great sorrows and pains and difficulties with disability, while also we are in good spaces a lot of the time. We can thrive in our disability in our own way. We can find joy or we can be in this nuanced space where we're like, yeah, there's hard things, but I'm used to it. You know, like I get in that space with my chronic pain sometimes where I'm like my, so my chronic pain 
100% of my life, I have chronic pain. It's like a, a dull, numb pain in my legs. But then there's points where I have really striking nerve pain where it's like shocks of pain throughout my body to the point where I have to like take medicine, sit down, like kind of rub my legs. I wince, you know, there's like ways that I have to deal with that and I can't just ignore it. So yeah, there's times where I'm like, "Ah, I'm used to it. Like, yes, I'm in pain, but it's a thing that's always there. It's not a big deal anymore. And then there's times where it's like, I'm toiling over it. It's awful. Anyway, there's a big, huge space that we can be in with life and with disability. And we need to allow that space for people to move in and not just assume one thing about their life. Like just because Joseph went through all these trials, his life sucked. That's not true. Just because a disabled person goes through these trials, their life sucks. You know, that's not true either. I love that you made that connection. I think that's really powerful. I even tried to address that on our Instagram recently. The whole like, your sufferings shall be for thy good and to not say that to someone suffering because I feel like a lot of times in our social media even we don't acknowledge this as much like even on our account because we're trying to combat the assumption that our lives are pitiful or something to feel sorry for right and by doing Mm -hmm. so sometimes we don't end up talking about the fact that yes disability is hard sometimes you know And so I just really was trying to address that in this post and like remind people that, yes, disability can be hard sometimes and that doesn't like make us any, quote, stronger or more resilient. It actually makes us more susceptible to further trauma and further like uh, mental health and physical difficulties. Anyway, I'm glad that we're able to like talk about things in a candid way and and show how disability is both um is ultimately neutral because it's both painful and devastating but also joyful and triumphant yeah really quick in verse four in section 127 Mm -hmm. i feel like this gets used a lot oh yes the whole do you know where i'm going with this (laughs) the end of the verse yes yeah the whole If they persecute you, so persecuted they the prophets and righteous men that were before you. For all this, there is a reward in heaven. This is a logical fallacy, okay? Like, the the way, or at least the way that people use this is a logical fallacy. Let's talk about this quote, okay? I'm ready. I'll ask you, Katie. When someone says this, what is their implication? What, what, What are they trying to say here? You're suffering for a divine purpose and you're connected to the people that suffered before you because you're suffering. Okay, yeah. So the implication is that if you're suffering, then you must be righteous, right? You're suffering like the people who are righteous and noble before you. Yep. Yep, yep. So this is a classic affirming the consequent fallacy. I've talked about the inverse of this, which is denying the antecedent. And I think that was in episode four, I believe. One of our early episodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, when you have an if-then statement, you have an antecedent and a consequent. Antecedent is the part before the then. So if blank, that's the antecedent. Then blank. The then blank is the consequent. And in logic... The thing that must be true is the first part, and then the second part follows, and that makes that whole statement true, if that makes sense. If you deny the first part, you cannot get to the same result in the end. That would be denying the antecedent. And if you affirm the last part, 
it's illogical to also assume the antecedent is true. I don't know if that will make any sense without me drawing it on the board because it's basically math with language, which is why my autistic brain like loved it so much. But anyway... <laughs> I'll read here really quick what affirming the consequent fallacy is. So this is Wikipedia, Google's definition. Um, Affirming the consequent, sometimes called converse error, fallacy of the converse or confusion of necessity and sufficiency is a formal fallacy of taking a true conditional statement and invalidly inferring its converse, even though the converse may not be true. So... I'll break this down. The logical statement that this verse implies is if they were a prophet, then they were persecuted, meaning they were persecuted because they're a prophet, right? Being a prophet led to them being persecuted. Would you agree Mm -hmm. with that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the actual logical converse of that, like that maintains the same logic is that if they were not persecuted, so here I am denying the consequent then they were not prophets because you have to also, if you deny the consequence, you also have to deny the antecedent. And that Mm -hmm. maintains the logic. But this statement in this verse is saying, if you are persecuted, which is affirming the consequence, then you are a prophet. And then there it is affirming the antecedent as well. And that is wrong. In simple terms, this is wrong because we know that there are plenty of people who are persecuted without being a prophet or even being righteous. There are plenty of people going through persecution and marginalization who do not belong to the church, who have never even heard of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who perhaps are not even monotheistic. Obviously, this statement is not true. And I think that it's just so telling that this logical fallacy is in this section because it just goes to show how insulated the mindset is of people writing the Doctrine and Covenants and they're like white Christian privilege. You know what I mean? Like they're assuming that they understand the totality of suffering and understand the totality of like persecution Mm. because of what they've been through. But that couldn't be farther from the truth, you know, especially as Mm. white people in a time when black people were still enslaved in the United States. So anyway, there's my thing about section 127. Yeah. I'm still thinking about this. Yes. <laughs> you tend to drop bombs and then say like, so there's that. And then I'm still like processing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I'm doing is popping your bubble that if you're persecuted, that means you're righteous. Okay. But reminder that I don't really believe in righteousness as a concept anyway. <laughs> to me, it's less of a like, wow, you you could be evil anyway, because I don't believe in that. It's more of like anybody can be persecuted under certain circumstances and anybody can be a persecutor in certain circumstances and membership Mm -hmm. of a specific church does not exclude you or include you in either of those categories automatically. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. This, I think you can take what I'm saying and in a really affirming way, if you look at it this way, if you've gone through suffering or been like marginalized in some sense and you're not a member of the church, your struggles are valid. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. those things happen to you. And I am fighting for that to be recognized within members of our church, even if our church is not like formally recognizing it because it's not in their little mindset of everything of we're the little special ones. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, on the other hand, fighting to remind people in our church, just because we're members of the church and we might have God's restored gospel, although, like I said, I'm skeptical (laughs) 
that doesn't mean that we are not capable of inflicting pain and persecuting other people. Yeah. And so I would hope that members of our church could use this to alter their paradigm a little bit, alter their mode of thinking and elevate their awareness and start asking themselves, in what ways am I upholding systems of oppression that persecute people who belong to groups that I don't belong to? Yes. Yeah. I hope people carry that message from this episode. I want to say another way of thinking it, but I think your way is more important. We shouldn't revel in martyrdom. Mm -hmm. Like you said in the last episode, we shouldn't have to go through trauma to (laughs) become stronger. Like that shouldn't be the goal or like a comfort to us. Like we have our own trials and we need to work through them the way that we find best. When I was on my mission, I would read this and feel power in this concept. But I see now like, yeah, maybe some people feel comfort in this, but also it can bring a lot of harm. Like think about an abusive relationship and someone saying, because I suffered, you can suffer too. And we're connected. That's Mm. like, would make people cringe, you know, want to draw away from this concept. But then you apply it to something you feel safe in, there can be harm in that too, in a way that you don't immediately recognize. Yeah. Okay, so 127 and 128 go into baptisms for the dead. Joseph's getting so specific as to talking about like how to record baptisms for the dead. And I thought about how there's some disabled people in the church that are deemed not accountable and how this section it's kind of talking about the importance of baptisms for the dead and we're making a way for people and that's just an accommodation that the lord presents people that were deemed not accountable i was wondering if there's any kind of rule for them not being allowed to also have a baptism for the dead like after they pass away no or if it's just kind of like how can i say this I was wondering if there's a way for a family member to baptize someone who was deemed not accountable while they were on earth because of their belief that, oh, when they die and get resurrected, they'll be perfected and then they'll need baptism. Oh. You know, like they won't have their disability more. They'll need baptism. We need to do their baptism for the dead. Like I was wondering if that thread of logic is allowed. Mm. So I actually called the temple. Oh my gosh, Katie! (laughs) I spoke to the temple recorder for a little bit about what's the policy and the procedure around this. And they were really direct, which I really appreciated. I feel like if you don't talk to the prophet or the first presidency, people tend to give really vague answers because they don't want to speak with authority and say something that they shouldn't. But this person was really direct. The temple recorder said... When it's on record that a person is not accountable, which is the procedure, if a conversation happens with the bishop and the family and the person with the disability and they're deemed not accountable, it goes on their actual membership record. And then when it's on record, even after the person dies, it stays on their record. Ordinances, including baptism, will not be performed in the temple except for sealing to parents. And then he said no exception. So never would there be a case where someone would take a name to the temple who's not accountable for baptism and baptize them in the temple. And the recorder at the temple also told me that while 
people are alive who are not accountable for baptism, they can also be sealed to their parents in the temple. The procedure is that the temple would just need a letter from the bishopric confirming that the person is deemed not accountable, and then they would still be let in the temple to be sealed. So yeah, that's the procedure there if anyone is uh, dealing with that in their lives. I didn't really think that I would be connected to someone same day, the temple recorder, to have my questions answered. But yeah, that's a resource that's available. And I felt like that was a really cool experience to learn about. Uh, yeah, I never knew any of that. How do you how do you feel about it? Like, do you agree with it? I so in the church handbook, it says individuals whose disabilities make them not accountable are saved in the celestial kingdom, quoting Doctrine and Covenants 13710. For this reason, ordinances are not needed or performed for them. The only exception is sealing to parents who are not born in the covenant. So when I called the temple, I was like, okay, if this is the procedure, I want to make sure that this is the way across the board because then that's showing that we do have faith in this concept that people are saved in the celestial kingdom if they're not baptized. If you were to say, oh, but disabled people will be perfected in the afterlife so I can still baptize them, that's going against what we're saying here. That's not having faith in this concept. And then also I thought about how cool it is that this is an accommodation for the thing that we've talked about, that perhaps when we get to the celestial kingdom, there will be disabled people. There will be neurodivergent people. This is something that it seems a lot of people will not be expecting in the celestial kingdom, but we think that is is a strong possibility. And we think that there's evidence in the scriptures and scripture stories of this. This would support that concept of like, no, they still don't need to be baptized because they're saved already. They don't need to be healed, quote unquote healed Mm. when we get to the celestial kingdom. They're saved as they are. And that's it, period. I love that. I yeah, I can I can see how that's really affirming. The only thing that gives me pause is that what if someone is considered not accountable for baptism, but they want to get married and get sealed to a partner in this life? Because yeah. there are some people who have intellectual disabilities who want to get married and like have families and stuff, you know? Yeah, and they are raised in the same church as us that teaches temple marriage, temple marriage, temple marriage. Like, that's an understandable desire that they would have too, yeah. And considering how, like, the order of ordinances works, like, you need to be baptized before the other things because you have to, the man in the relationship, which I, I say it ironically, but it's still the case in the church, right, is sealing them with his own priesthood power, right? Am I wrong? Like, he's use, exercising his priesthood power with the sealer to seal them together. If he's not, if he doesn't have the priesthood, oh. he can't be sealed to a partner. I actually didn't know that. I'm pretty sure. I might be wrong because, like I said, it's been a while since I went to church. Maybe, like, a year and a half. But point is, you can't be sealed to a spouse until you've gone through baptism, initiatory, priesthood for the men, endowment, etc. You can't just skip to sealing to a spouse, you know? Like, sealing to the parents mm-hmm. is the only exception to doing ordinances in the temple without being baptized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my only thing, is that, like, if we're going to make accommodations that way, then what do we do about people who want to be sealed to their partners, like, who are not, quote, accountable? Like, are we going to apply that same logic and say, 
they're automatically sealed because the Lord recognizes them as not accountable. And then, like, how does that approach how we view sealings in general, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's great questions. Yeah, it's just things to mull over. Really quickly, yeah. on verse 3, I just wanted to raise a question here. I thought it was interesting how it specifies that the recorder needs to be able to hear and to see. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we feel about this. Like, honest rhetorical question. Is it discriminatory to have specific physical requirements for a calling that excludes disabled people? And to add to that question, is it necessary to have certain physical abilities to be able to witness something? Yeah, exactly. Like, would you say that when Christ came down and visited the Nephites, I can't remember if he called children to him first or disabled people to him first to be healed, but would you say that they were unable to witness mm. Christ's ascension without their ability to see or their ability to hear? Yeah. Were they just like not able to witness before then? I would say absolutely not. They yeah. knew that Christ was coming down, you know? Yes, which is why verse 5 is a little bit to me because it's basically backing up that whole thing in verse 3 about having to have specific abilities to, to witness. It says, you may think this is very particular, but it's the will of God. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like that kind of flies in the face of inclusion to an extent of disabled people and I feel like it's something that could really be a sticking point for some disabled people you know especially now that women are allowed to be witnesses in the temple to baptisms for the dead what if someone wants to go to the temple with their granddaughter and they want to be a witness because they're finally baptizing like their own grandmother's name or something and the grandmother who's going to the temple with her like 12 year old granddaughter can't hear will, mm -hmm. will she still be able to be a witness i don't know like i feel like there's a lot of temple workers that would probably have hearing aids considering like <laughs> that a lot of temple workers are elderly people like yeah. what are the accommodations that they already make for them and can you make those accommodations for people who are not old are you only yeah. allowing that accommodation because they're old and you just assume that because they're old that they're going to be disabled and therefore like they're allowed some leeway you know i wonder if this could also be an example of ableism where if someone is known as non-disabled or hearing and they become disabled or deaf People knew them before their lives were affected and changed and like knew that they were competent, knew who they were, and then they understand better who this person is and what their abilities are still, despite how their lives have changed. Whereas if someone comes in who they're only known as disabled or deaf, or they've been disabled or deaf their whole life, people assume incompetence or barriers or lack of ability or whatever. I wonder if that's part of it too. Anyway, it's great questions. Honestly, really great. I had to think about 128 mm -hmm. verse 8. It mentions a Latin phrase there, in propria persona. It says, 
For out of the books shall your dead be judged according to their own works, whether they themselves have attended to the ordinances in their propria persona or by the means of their own agents, according to the ordinance which God has prepared for their salvation, blah, 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 blah. And this phrase is actually like a legal phrase, and it means acting for one's own self. I'm paraphrasing from dictionary.law.com. It's generally used to identify a person who's acting as his or own attorney in a lawsuit, which I thought was really interesting considering the fact that A, we're talking about baptisms for the dead. These people are not representing themselves. And B, why is it using that phrase? Like any lawyers who are our followers like want to duke it out and tell me why it's using this phrase. And B, this highlights a more important question in my opinion. Why do we need baptism if we have Jesus Christ? This is basically saying that these people are not having an advocate, that these people are advocating for themselves, right? In which case, that kind of denies the whole purpose of the atonement of Jesus Christ, which is to cover the sins and and whatnot of everybody. I feel like I'm either missing something or this is just worded really poorly. So I want to leave that Mm. open. And then, oh, okay. I do have something for 129 talking about ministering angels and spirits and how to distinguish them Mm. this section was not written informed about people with psychosis or people with schizophrenia i guess that kind of it makes sense that it was not written that way because it was 1843 and many of these things were demonized even by scientists until the 20th century or mid 20th century right so like I understand why it wasn't informed by that, but we need to be cognizant of that and mm-hmm. make sure that we are reinterpreting it or even rewriting it in some instances or even disregarding it if we need to so that we are affirming people with psychosis and schizophrenia, etc. So especially for people with psychosis who have visions of people or angels, The verses prior to this are saying, okay, an angel will do this. If you talk to an angel, this is what they will do, blah, 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 blah. But if it be the devil as an angel of light, like if it's a devil pretending to be an angel, when you ask him, which I think is funny that it says him, but whatever, like, like, cue uh, Montero by Lil Nas, but. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Anyway. um... I need a second. <laughs> okay, keep going. Keep going. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. I just like, I just really want to give a devil like a lap dance. Like, anyway. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> is this what your training is for? <laughs> Shush. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So it says. <laughs> Taking a deep breath. <laughs> trying to read this and be serious so it says if it be the devil as an angel of light when you ask him to shake hands he will offer you his hand and you will not feel anything you may therefore detect him so it's basically saying if you try to shake hands with a vision of a person that you're seeing and they actually shake your hand but you can't feel anything physically then they're a devil you're seeing a devil and i just feel like that's super problematic Especially considering the context of how disabled people and people who experience psychosis have been demonized and have been told that they 
are possessed or evil or are being haunted, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's this is just another thing to reinforce that and to make people with psychosis feel bad about themselves and to question their own sanity and to question, like, their wholeness as a person and their, like, ability to be in tune with holy things. Like, can you imagine what it must be like to have these sorts of visions and to constantly think that devils are surrounding you? Yeah. Like, I I have friends who experience these things and it weighs on them, you know? And I think part of that is because they grew up in a church environment and believe that these things, or at least there was a time where they believed that these things were devils, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say that they aren't because I am not that person and I am not omniscient. I acknowledge that there are unseen things that I don't experience. And so I'm not going to say that they're not there. But I just want to point that out. But also, so I just want to give a few facts about schizophrenia and psychosis, if that's okay. So one fact that I didn't know until I researched this is that psychosis is actually commonly seen in Parkinson's disease patients. Mm -hmm. It was previously thought that it was due to the dopamine with the medications used to treat the condition, but 50% of Parkinson's psychosis are actually due to the disease itself. This is because the disease process destroys serotonin-producing neurons, which in turn triggers signaling in the brain similar to what is seen when people consume LSD. So I think that's a good example of how having one disability can increase the probability of you developing another disability or neurodivergence and why a lot of disabled or neurodivergent people have multiple conditions, right? Conditions or like aspects of disability like yeah psychosis is like an experience of a disability yes, not a disability in and of itself yes 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 yeah. yes exactly what you said multiple aspects that are usually associated with other disabilities i guess mm. mm-hmm. and then going back to schizophrenia so this is from psychosis positivity rose parker who is a psychology student they actually do have psychosis i think it's really cool because it's both you have their own like life experience but also they incorporate like lots of research articles like this one. So five things that you might not know about schizophrenic voices. They're just saying that it's incredibly complex and one Instagram post can't attempt to cover the entire subject. But here are some aspects of voices that people might not be aware of. One, not all voices are unpleasant. According to Beck et al. 2011, a significant number of people with schizophrenia have a positive experience of their voices. This does not necessarily mean the voice content is good. The authors later note that two-thirds of patients find benign voice content threatening. The voice interpretation, voice in this instance, by the way, is capitalized. The voice interpretation determines the experience, and that is a focus of psychotherapy. Two, most people get used to them. The Beck et al. 2011 book describes how most people with schizophrenia eventually reach a stabilization phase where they become indifferent to their voices, and I can vouch for that myself. After living with voices for an extended period of time, you learn their patterns and they no longer feel shocking. You also learn Mm. they don't have any actual power. Eventually, they just become part of the background. Mm. Three, they're linked to dissociation. Dissociation likely plays a causal role in psychosis. 
Piencos et al. 2019 describes how dissociation might lower cognitive barriers and inner speech becomes experienced as an auditory event. Dissociation might play a role in generating the psychotic disorder as a whole by causing an initial breakdown in the sense of self. Four, voices can manifest as visible figures. Piencos et al. 2019 describes a phenomenon called autoscopy, A-U-T-O-S-C-O-P-Y, in which a psychotic person experiences a hallucinatory, quote, double of themselves for some period of time, a figure of themselves often tied to auditory hallucinations. I personally see all of my memories as though I am watching myself in a film and occasionally see a hallucinatory second self. However, neither Hmm. of these are connected to my voices as far as I know. In a similar phenomenon, people can see their voices as embodied figures rather than disembodied characters. I have met multiple people who experience this, and this is also discussed in the Pienko's text. So you can see, this is Serena talking again, Um, you can see how this ties in with what we're reading in verse 8 in section 128. Yeah. Like, this is a phenomenon that is commonplace in people with psychosis, but here the Doctrine and Covenants is saying, oh, it's a devil. Like, no, that's a clear problem with that verse right there. Fifth fact is not all auditory hallucinations are voices. Music is a common auditory hallucination. It can have words or be instrumental. I've found that people often hear music from previous eras rather than modern music. Whistling, ringing, and clanging are also common. Tinnitus may commonly co-occur in schizophrenia and psychosis. They close out this post by saying there is a huge range of experience when it comes to voices and auditory hallucinations. People think they understand voices because they're frequently portrayed in the media, but the reality is that it is far from the case. Real experience of schizophrenic voices looks very little like a Hollywood product. And then there are citations. And then they also, I won't read it because it's super long, but I really encourage people to go to their website or at least their Instagram first, and then their website. Um, they wrote an article that says, are people who hear voices really dangerous? Um, and I think that's really important to read that and combat the assumption that just because someone hears voices or sees things, has hallucinations um, that are not perceived by the general public, that they're a danger to other people. Um, because I think that that's part of why this stuff is written in the Doctrine and Covenants the way it is because of that assumption. So that's all I had. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. Let's link that in the show notes and we'll put it in the transcript as well, like a link to that. Really briefly, I want to say section 131 is about celestial marriage. And I'm going to say a really brief statement. I want to overall encourage you to listen to Beyond the Block. Their episode on this should come out when our episode is posted. It'll be that same week. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll go more into this, but I want to say briefly. So there's the section header, and then there's like a little summary of verses, right? Before you go into the verses. The summary says, celestial marriage is essential to exaltation in the highest heaven. But then when you read the actual verses, it just talks about how a man must enter into the order of the priesthood, quote, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into other, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. So the summary talks broadly about celestial marriage. But then the actual verses only talk about a man's experience with the priesthood 
in context of celestial marriage. So I just want to say that this section leaves out women and Joseph hadn't yet received revelation on LGBTQ people. So this leaves them out too. Um, yeah. So quoting this section and applying it to all people when talking about the celestial kingdom and temple marriage is irresponsible. Yeah, that's a really good point. Also back then when it was given, I don't know what the timing of this is because I know that Joseph practiced polygamy for a while before it was announced to the church in general but for a long time in the 1800s in the latter half of the 1800s this is the section that supported the doctrine of polygamy and that the new and everlasting covenant was not just celestial marriage that it was a polygamous marriage and that if you were not in a plural marriage then that was not the new and everlasting covenant Right. And 132, that's when it goes into plural marriage for the first time, like explicitly stated in Doctrine and Covenants. It says it was recorded in 1843, but the prophet had known of these principles and doctrines since 1831. For me, Come Follow Me for section 129 through 132 brought a whole jumble of mixed feelings this part of church history is definitely nuanced and that's okay. We're going to have a lot of different feelings when we read this. So when you look at the Come Follow Me, the second paragraph of the like header, I guess, it says, Sometimes God may ask us to do things that are so uncomfortable that they seem unreachable. For many early saints, plural marriage was one such commandment. The commandment to marry additional wives was a severe trial of faith for Joseph Smith and his wife Emma, and almost everyone who received it. So this part, I'm like heartbroken for the saints in this circumstance. Actually, in this section 132, verses 51 through 57 is Emma being counseled to be faithful and true. And it names Emma specifically in these verses. And then after that, 58 through 66 go into the laws governing the plurality of wives. I feel for Emma in this. She was singled out, called out for the pain that she was having and difficulty with this. I can't imagine how frustrating and upsetting this must have been. Back to Come Follow Me, it continues. To make it through this trial, they needed more than just favorable feelings about the restored gospel. They needed faith in God that went deeper than any personal desires or biases. And that example inspires us when we are asked to make our own quote, sacrifices in obedience. So I went super back and forth with all of this part of it. I was like, yeah, that's what's up. We need to listen to this. And then part of it, I was like, whoa, we need to give space for people who struggle with certain teachings of the church right now, whether they're identified as principles, doctrines, or policies. And actually, it talks about personal revelation in opposition to a broader commandment in this section, 132. In verse 36, Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac. Nevertheless, it was written, thou shalt not kill. Abraham, however, did not refuse, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So the broad commandment was thou shalt not kill. But Abraham received personal revelation from God that he had to kill his son Isaac. And then, of course, that was taken away 
afterward and he didn't end up killing his son, but he was willing to follow this personal revelation from God over this broad commandment. The way that I personally deal with the nuance when I feel personal revelation is in opposition to a broader commandment given by the prophet is to look at the first and second greatest commandments. What is leading me to love God and what is leading me to love others? That is one of the greatest things that we can measure any commandment against. If one of them follows the first and second greatest commandment, then choose that one. Masks and vaccines is an example of loving God and loving your neighbors, and we should do it if we're able to. And overwhelmingly, most people are able to follow the urges by the prophet to wear a mask and get vaccinated and social distance when possible. So that's what we should be doing. If the commandment from the prophet is that certain people like LGBTQ people or women are not equal in the church. Is this commandment leading me to love God and love my neighbor? Not necessarily. I I don't believe it is. Further revelation is coming on these things and I need to follow my personal revelation in the meantime that's leading me to better love God and love my neighbors in this circumstance. Come follow me. It continues on Heavenly Father made it possible for families to be eternal. And then it says, Sometimes, however, the principle of eternal families is not so comforting. It may bring anxiety, even sadness, when our current family situation does not fit the celestial ideal. I don't love the phrase celestial ideal, but I love the space that Come Follow Me is making here for people who have nuanced feelings around the concepts of eternal families and where they fit in with this. Unfortunately, Come Follow Me goes into doubling down on what marriage is now. It talks about plural marriage and how many people in the Bible and throughout time have had plural wives. And then it says marriage between one man and one woman is God's standard of marriage. A reminder here that plural marriage was considered doctrine back then. Right now, There's a doctrine of the family. All we can say is we know that we don't have the full revelation yet because we don't have revelation on LGBTQ people. (laughs) I loved that Derek on Beyond the Block called the family proclamation the straight family proclamation because that's what we have. That's our doctrine on marriage right now is for people in straight cisgendered relationships We don't have further revelation for LGBTQ people. The prophets need to ask the right questions to receive that revelation. We know that more has to come because there are people that don't fit into this box. Yeah, I know that polygamy can be a hard topic for a lot of people, especially raised in the monogamous environment and in the like, how we put marriage to one person of the opposite sex on a pedestal in this church. Um, I know that this can be a hard topic, but I want you to imagine that you are living in the 1800s in like maybe 1860s, 1870s Utah, and you have all the same beliefs that you do now. In addition, you have this doctrine that you have to be married to more than one person, or if you're a woman, that you have to quote unquote, share your husband with somebody else. I wrote a whole screenplay about this, actually. (laughs) 
there are journal entries of pioneer women about how many of them engaged in polygamy because they felt like it was necessary to their salvation. They felt called to do it. They felt like it was a calling. They felt the spirit confirming it, you know, all these things that nowadays we look back and be like, that's heinous, that's atrocious, or I don't want to talk about it. It's hard for me to talk about, right? But they felt really inspired and they even wrote in their journals, this is for my descendants. And me reading that, I was really touched because I was like, wow, like, they're doing it for us and we don't even talk about them, you know? So I just want you to imagine that and then also think to yourself, could this happen again? Is there a doctrine that I wholeheartedly believe in that could be changed or like turned on its head, you know? And how would Mm -hmm. that feel? Yeah. Believe into the point that we think it's essential for our salvation. Yes. Essential for salvation and that you completely like base your life around. Mm -hmm. And I think this goes to show that doctrines change and the church does change. I hope that this will give some hope regarding the doctrines regarding LGBTQ individuals. Try to use some cognitive empathy, not emotional affective empathy, but try to exercise your brain a little bit to imagine what it would be like if that were the case. Yes, with that quick announcement, we know that we didn't talk about polygamy and plurality of marriage very much in this episode. In lieu of talking about it here, since we're running out of time, we're actually going to make a bonus episode. Well, Serena is. I'm going to edit it, but Serena's going to create a bonus episode all about polygamy including the perspectives of LGBTQ people and disabled and neurodiverse people. You can expect that bonus episode to drop this Thursday, the 11th. So please be on the lookout for that. Please follow us on Instagram at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. Email us at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com if you want to be involved. Join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash holyhumanpodcast, patreon.com slash holyhuman. We also want to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. That's it for us this time, friends. Thanks for listening or reading. <laughs>